My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History. Episode 54, it's treason then. In the last episode, we saw the advance of France. Not only had the revolutionary armies experienced tremendous success, but the revolutionary project was expanded into the occupied territories. Convinced that they were acting in accordance with the principles of a crusade for universal liberty, the French revolutionaries had managed to create a problem. A problem the size of Belgium. In this episode, we continue to track events in the Upper and Lower Netherlands. After exploring what brought Britain and the Dutch Republic into the Revolutionary War, we'll examine de Maurier's invasion of the United Provinces. We'll unpack the devastating counterattack launched by Austria and Prussia, and the impact this had on both the National Convention and its army in the field. Things are about to get messy, as the title of this episode may suggest. Before we get into it, I apologise for it being a little while since the last narrative episode. My health has been all over the place recently, but I am now 100% and back doing what I love, which is bringing you more grey history. The good news after this delay is that the next two episodes are not only written, but they're actually recorded as well. Furthermore, episode 55, Civil War in the Vendee, is already released for patrons with early access. So buckle up for a wild ride over the next few months as we continue to explore the chaos of 1793. As we do so, you can take comfort in the fact that Grey History will be returning to its regular fortnightly schedule. Of course, there are people we need to thank for making Grey History possible. To the people who share the show with friends and family, who post about it on Reddit and Twitter, who leave one-off donations and send in heartwarming reviews, thank you so much for your support. Most importantly, thank you so much to those members of the Patreon community for going the extra mile and helping to keep Grey History on the air. I'll have more to say about the show's future in the next few months, but in the meantime, please know that your contribution is what makes Grey History possible. It's what keeps me fed, it's what keeps me housed, and most importantly, it's what allows me to continue to bring you the history podcast that you've come to love. As a reminder, if you're enjoying Grey History, if you find it educational, if you find it entertaining, please, please, please support Grey History on Patreon. For as little as $2 an episode, for as little as half a cup of coffee, you can help do your part to keep the podcast on the air. Google Grey History Patreon or click the link in the show notes or on the website. I look forward to welcoming you personally. Speaking of welcomes, it's time to introduce the newest amazing people who are part of the Patreon community. A warm welcome to the newest virtuous citizens, Simon, Tamina, Carlos, Josh, Alan, Steve, Danielle, John S, 
John P, Bruce, Kirsten, Sophia, Carl, James W, James N, and the mysterious Citizen A. Another warm welcome to the newest true revolutionary, Richard, and I do hope you enjoy your early access to the fantastic episode 55, Civil War in the Vendee. Of course, during civil wars, we need champions of the people, so it's a pleasure to introduce Adam, who joins Cynthia, George, Tim, Mark, William, Laura, Daniel, Monica, Joel, and Susan as the amazing champions of the people. Finally, a huge thank you to the extremely generous Jeff, who joins the mighty heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, and Charles. As always, thank you to all the patrons of Grey History for making the podcast possible. Peace for our time. That was the infamous proclamation of British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain on the 30th of September, 1938. In an iconic scene, Chamberlain reassured the British public, and indeed the wider world, that peace would prevail on the European continent. Of course, just a year later, World War II had begun. In terms of terrible predictions, Chamberlain's has got to be one of the most famous. No other line encapsulates the failings of his prime ministership or the broader policy of appeasement. Perhaps one day we'll do a Grey History episode on Chamberlain, because there is plenty to discuss, but until then I want to focus on another British prime minister, one that made a similar prediction for peace, and one who also got things terribly wrong. In February 1792, British Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger made a bold prediction. Defending a reduction in military spending, the Prime Minister claimed that the nation could expect 15 years of peace. As such, England could afford to decrease the size of its armed forces by several thousand sailors and soldiers. To paraphrase Chamberlain, there would be peace in his time. Yet, only two months later, war broke out on the continent, and instead of 15 years of peace, Britain was on the precipice of nearly 25 years of war. So, why was Pitt's prediction so wildly off? And how did the British find themselves entering the Revolutionary War? When conflict commenced between France and Austria in April 1792, Pitt was committed to maintaining England's neutrality. From the perspective of London, war with France offered no tangible benefits. It was common knowledge that the Germanic armies would crush the ill-disciplined revolutionaries within months. Why spill British blood and spend British treasure when both Austria and Prussia 
seemed ready to turn Paris into a modern-day Carthage. Yet, despite being committed to neutrality, developments on the continent would push Pitt to get off the sidelines. Throughout the summer of 1792, the situation in France changed dramatically. The monarchy was toppled, the coalition armies were repelled, and suddenly, a far more dangerous and far more radical revolution looked ready to strike. And it appeared that this new revolutionary republic was capable of not just striking at the Prussians or the Austrians, but at the British as well. Not necessarily the home islands, but at a minimum, British interests on the continent. And if we want to understand how Britain entered the fray, it's these British interests which are worth exploring. Because it was the endangerment of these national interests that forced Pitt to adopt a far more hostile and aggressive posture towards France. As the French armies commenced their amazingly successful counterattack in late 1792, it wasn't immediately clear that England would be forced into the war. Historian George Lefebvre claims that Prime Minister Pitt might have been willing to stomach certain gains for the French, provided that they didn't cross any proverbial red lines. After all, the annexation of Savoy, a region south of Geneva, was a loss for the Kingdom of Sardinia, but it was hardly a blow to British national interests. Likewise, Lefebvre states that Pitt may have even been willing to see French annexation of limited territory in the Rhineland, again on the grounds that British interests were not sufficiently threatened. But scan your eyes further north, and the situation was completely different. Throughout November and December 1792, a combination of both French foreign policy and military success prompted London to act. On the military front, the situation in both the Upper and Lower Netherlands was unacceptable to the British. In the Upper Netherlands, aka the Dutch Republic, the British were convinced that the French intended to expand the war. The Dutch Republic, or the United Provinces as it was officially known, was the key continental ally of the British, and they suspected that it was just a matter of time until the French attacked. Although the French denied this, British spies knew full well that General de Maurier was campaigning to invade, and thus viewed French assurances of peace as nothing more than lies and deception. Further south, the military situation in the Lower Netherlands, aka the occupied Austrian Netherlands, aka Belgium, was equally worrying. The British might have been willing to stomach the annexation of Savoy or some small Rhineish territories, but Belgium's occupation was a completely different story. Belgium was one of the most developed and wealthiest regions of Europe, and it had the potential to greatly expand French commercial and naval power, and of course it allowed the French to threaten an attack against the Dutch at any opportunity. Now, you may be thinking to yourself that this French occupation of Belgium might not be such a big deal. After all, it wasn't like the French intended to stay. Originally, their plans were to create an independent Belgian Republic, 
And should the creation of such a state really cause the British so much angst? But, as with the issue of a possible invasion of the Dutch Republic, a chronic lack of trust permeated throughout Anglo-French relations. Neither side trusted the other, and neither side really understood how the other thought. What this meant in relation to Belgium's occupation was that the British never really believed that the French actually intended to leave. The British didn't believe that the French wanted to create an independent Belgium, despite it being a sincere goal of the French Foreign Minister Le Bras, the French General de Maurier, and indeed many revolutionaries back in Paris. Instead, the British feared French annexation of the Austrian Netherlands, long before the French had actually concluded that they would do just that. From the perspective of the British, the French occupation of Belgium was just the first step towards annexation. These developments in the military situation may have been enough to prompt Britain into war. But the formation of French foreign policy further convinced Prime Minister Pitt that the French Republic was directly threatening British national interests. Three policies in particular drove this conclusion. Firstly, there was the infamous December Decree. Secondly, there was the Convention's November Decree, which extended aid to all peoples who may wish to regain their liberty. Finally, there was the French decision to unilaterally reopen the Scheldt Estuary. All three of these things are important to understand why Britain entered the war, so let's briefly unpack them in that order. As discussed in the last episode, the December Decree expanded revolutionary administration into Belgium, abolishing its traditional institutions and ignoring the wishes of the Belgian people as it did so. This forced adoption of the revolution's principles further convinced the British that the French intended to annex Belgium. Furthermore, it reduced trust between the two sides, as the British believed that the French were lying when they claimed that they had no intention of annexing the occupied territory. From the perspective of the British, the introduction of revolutionary laws was a natural step towards annexation and it was interpreted as such. Of course, we know that the December Decree had a whole host of motivating factors, completely separate to annexation, including a desire to find ways to finance the war, as well as reduce the autonomy and independence of General de Maurier. However, the British did not appreciate this, and thus the expansion of revolutionary administration into Belgium further convinced the British that the French would only leave if forced to do so. The second foreign policy development, which escalated tensions between the two nations, related to the Convention's November 19 decree. This decree, the so-called Edict of Fraternity, was the decree which extended fraternal feelings and aid to all peoples who may wish to regain their liberty. It was also the decree which instructed French generals to help these peoples and defend those fighting for the cause of liberty. For many neutral states, this decree was dangerous to say the least. 
by advocating for the assistance of those who may wish to regain their liberty, by promising support to those fighting tyranny, neighbouring states concluded that the Edict of Fraternity was essentially an excuse for the French to intervene in their internal affairs at any given moment. Furthermore, with the French openly declaring their intention to intervene on behalf of subject peoples, the decree also encouraged radical elements of those neutral states to rebel against their current government. In London, the November 19 decree was greeted with concern for two key reasons. Firstly, the French government could potentially use this decree to invade the Dutch Republic. Dutch exiles and local revolutionaries were openly cooperating with the French and vocally pushing the convention to overthrow the Stadtholder's regime. With the Dutch Democrats preparing to commence a civil war, it was entirely reasonable that the French could use this struggle of the Dutch people as justification for an armed intervention. Thus, both the British and the Dutch governments viewed this decree as laying the groundwork for a commencement of hostilities. Secondly, and more importantly, the Edict of Fraternity had direct implications for Britain. Although relatively small, a reformist movement in Great Britain was agitating for considerable parliamentary and social reforms, which were partly inspired by the same ideas which powered the revolution. This movement was viewed as a threat to the establishment. It even had the support of some radical members of parliament, and thus the government soon perceived that the French could use this movement as an excuse to intervene in internal British affairs. Furthermore, the British government already believed that French spies were secretly assisting the reformist movement in an attempt to start a revolution in not only England, but Scotland and Ireland as well. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that many of these reformist organisations in Britain were just that, reformist. They did not want to start a revolution. They wanted to reform the system from within rather than tear it all down and start again. But neither the British nor French governments knew this at the time. Thus, Prime Minister Pitt and his colleagues viewed the Edict of Fraternity with angst. From their perspective, it provided the French with the excuse to intervene in the internal affairs of any European state, including Britain. Furthermore, they believed that France was already acting in accordance with this decree, attempting to destabilise the kingdom and bring about a revolution through clandestine support for the opposition movements. As a result, some in the British government came to support war with France as a means of eliminating this threat, as conflict would enable laws to suppress the reformists. Ultimately, this is exactly what would occur in the following years, with Pitt eventually moving to eliminate any threat of parliamentary or social reform by using repressive wartime legislation. Nonetheless, the French policy of aid and support to peoples struggling against tyranny was perceived as a threat by the British, as were French operations which seemed to be acting on this policy.
Thus, the edict of fraternity was a contributing factor to the outbreak of war. Finally, in mid-November, a third policy introduced by the French government brought conflict even closer. At the centre of the policy was occupied Belgium, and in particular, the Belgian port of Antwerp. For those of you that aren't too familiar with the history of Antwerp, I don't blame you. A major port on the Belgian coastline, Antwerp is often overshadowed by its more famous commercial rivals, Amsterdam and London. But that gives you a hint of where I'm about to go. Long before the revolution, Antwerp was one of the key trading capitals of Europe. Throughout the 14 and 1500s, the port city experienced a tremendous golden age. It was undoubtedly one of the commercial centres of Europe, and some historians go as far as arguing that it was the leading commercial capital. However, over the two centuries prior to the revolution, Antwerp had suffered a significant collapse in both population and commercial activities. There were several reasons for this, but one of them was the closure of the Scheldt estuary. The Scheldt is a rather large river which more or less connects all of Belgium, either directly or through its various waterways. Antwerp, sitting almost but not quite at the location where the river meets the North Sea, was severely affected by the closure of the Scheldt, as it essentially cut the port city off from accessing the ocean. As a result, Antwerp's trading activities were significantly curtailed, and nearby port cities gained at Antwerp's expense. The notable winners of this arrangement were Amsterdam and Rotterdam for the Dutch, and London for the British. Now, it may not surprise you that the power responsible for closing the Scheldt estuary to commercial navigation was a chief beneficiary, the Dutch. The river, ever so slightly, weaved into Dutch territory between the North Sea and Antwerp, providing the perfect opportunity to close the waterway and weaken a commercial rival. Profiting from the status quo, both the Dutch and the English had a stake in keeping the river closed for navigation, and for roughly two centuries, closed it remained. But the French revolutionaries had other ideas. If you recall, both General de Maurier and his ally, the French Foreign Minister Lebrun, were big believers in the establishment of an independent Belgium. Both were pursuing policies hoping to endear the Belgians to the revolution, such as de Maurier's light-handed treatment of the church and his attempts to bolster the local economy with purchases for his army. Following a similar approach, the foreign minister, Lebrun, decided to rip up centuries of international treaties and open the Scheldt River for trade. In doing so, it was hoped that the Belgians would realise the commercial opportunities and freedoms that the revolution offered and further endear the Belgians to the cause of liberty. What impact this had on Belgian public opinion can be debated, but what it most certainly did was enrage the British and the Dutch. In fact, historian Michael Sydenham claims that the two nations were irrevocably antagonised by the move. Not only did the opening of the Scheldt threaten the commercial position of their ports, but it also further demonstrated 
that the French could not be trusted. The closure of the Scheldt to navigation had been confirmed in treaties for centuries, and here the French were unilaterally repudiating this with some flimsy excuse called natural laws and the rights of nations. Perhaps more so than the commercial threat posed by Antwerp's possible revival, it was France's repudiation of the international system which unsettled the British the most. To the Brits, it proved once more that the Republic was untrustworthy and dangerous. Together with the promises to intervene on behalf of revolutionary rebels, the British perceived the French to be repudiating every single tenet of international law. How could peace be maintained if the Republic refused to be bound by borders or treaties? Perhaps the answer was ridding France of the Republic. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States. How we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. So, by January 1793, the British had more than enough reasons to abandon its stance of neutrality. The French occupation of Belgium alone was sufficiently alarming for the British, and the possibility of the territory's permanent annexation was completely unacceptable. In addition to France's recent conquests of Belgium, the Dutch Republic was threatened by revolutionary armies, while both allies' commercial interests were endangered by the opening of the Scheldt. Finally, France's clear intention to export the revolution and its stated goal of aiding revolutionaries and rebels abroad was viewed with angst in London. The British believed that French agents were causing agitation in the home islands, that French spies were sowing the seeds for a revolution in England itself. In such circumstances, had a war not already begun? Thus, when news reached London that King Louis XVI had been executed, the British found a convenient pretext for war. As the British had not officially recognised the French Republic, the unofficial French ambassador was handed his passport and shipped back across the Channel. This was the first step in the commencement of hostilities. But 
unaware of how greatly relations had deteriorated, the National Convention in Paris was surprised by the sudden expulsion of their de facto ambassador. Outraged by the treatment of its representative in London, the French decided to beat the British to the punch. On the 1st of February 1793, the convention declared war on England and Holland. Everything had changed. With the expansion of the war, de Maurier was finally granted his wish. A puppy. No, not really. His other wish. The invasion of the Dutch Republic. Having previously lobbied for an assault against the United Provinces, the general was now given the green light by the convention. There were just three teeny, tiny, sort of very large problems. Firstly, de Maurier had been advocating for an invasion for months, and the prospect of the French striking the Dutch regime was by no means a secret. As a result, the Dutch and the Prussians had been busily erecting fortifications and repositioning troops. By the time de Maurier was finally allowed to attack, his original invasion plan was useless. Enemy preparations meant that the general needed a whole new strategy. Secondly, throughout December and January, the French had done a wonderful job of bringing Belgium to the brink of revolt. What this meant was that de Maurier had a real risk of a rebellion in his rear the moment he marched into Holland. This complicated the situation significantly for de Maurier and limited the options he had for a new strategy to conquer the United Provinces. Finally, by February 1793, de Maurier's army was a complete and utter mess. Morale was low, desertions were increasing, and those critical supplies we were discussing last episode still hadn't materialised in any significant number. What this meant is that far from operating with an elite and energised fighting force, de Maurier had the exact opposite. All three of these problems would have been dangerous on their own. Together, they were deadly. With his original invasion plans now outdated, de Maurier had to come up with something new. At a high level, the plan created looked something like this. A portion of French forces, led by de Maurier's subordinates, would isolate key pockets of the Dutch defenders and besiege important urban centres. With the defenders held in check, de Maurier would lead elements of his army on a wild and daring dash straight up the Netherlands with the intention of seizing the commercial centre of Amsterdam. With the assistance of local revolutionaries, it was hoped that the Dutch regime could be quickly toppled, leading to the surrender of any forces still holding out against the French. It was a high-risk, high-reward strategy, but the general had little choice. Historian Patricia Howe writes on de Maurier's audacious plan and the conditions required for its success. De Maurier proposed a daring two-pronged attack. Miranda and his generals would besiege Maastricht and prevent Brunswick's army from reinforcing its garrison, while de Maurier would lead the rest of the army of Belgium on the shortest but most dangerous route, much of it by water, to capture Amsterdam. This strategy would enable the French 
to cover a broad span of territory with a limited number of troops and make an unexpected and rapid advance. De Maurier's intention was to capture most of the major cities and defences en route, trap Brunswick's forces between Miranda's army and his own, and, with the aid of Dutch patriots, establish a republican government that would order Dutch commanders to surrender the remaining fortresses. Depending on speed and surprise, de Maurier did not intend to fight a conventional war. He was counting on the enemy's supposition that the French forces were much more formidable than they were, on the Stadtholder not having an immediate plan of defence or a mobilised and seasoned army, and on a simultaneous Dutch insurrection. Above all, de Maurier realised he must astonish the enemy with the impetuosity of the strike. In this, de Maurier did not anticipate that British intelligence had learned of this strategy and quickly communicated it to the Allies. Having devised a bold strategy, dependent on speed and surprise, de Maurier invaded the Upper Netherlands in mid-February 1793. Initially, things went well. Several Dutch towns fell to the French in quick succession. But at the start of March, disaster struck. France's enemies had long anticipated the assault against the Dutch Republic, and both the Prussians and the Austrians were committed to making a determined effort to prevent the campaign's success. This determination stemmed from different sources, but for the Austrians in particular, failure was not an option. If the French could establish a revolutionary regime in Holland, the chances of the Austrians reconquering Belgium would diminish greatly. The Austrian Netherlands were some of the wealthiest regions in both the Holy Roman Empire and the Austrian domains in particular, and their loss would be a significant blow. Thus, the coalition armies commenced a coordinated and devastating counterattack on the 1st of March. In the north, the Austrians moved against Belgium, hoping to capitalise on exposed French positions and Belgium's readiness to revolt. Further south, the Prussians attacked the Rhineland, preventing the French from being able to focus on the defence of just one region. What followed was a month of unmitigated disaster, to borrow the phrase used by historian Jonathan Israel. Striking at the overextended French, the Austrian commander Coburg immediately seized the German city of Aachen. French forces besieging the nearby Dutch city of Maastricht were now themselves in danger and began to withdraw the very next day. By the 5th of March, just five days after the counterattack had begun, the French decided to withdraw altogether from the Prince Bishopric of Liège. Confusion and disorder gripped the retreating French as the Austrian advance looked as if it could soon reclaim all of Belgium. Critically, de Maurier and his army were at risk of being cut off and isolated in Holland. If the Austrians could recapture Brussels, there was a very real chance that the general would be trapped in the Dutch Republic, surrounded by enemies on all sides. De Maurier thus had to abandon the Dutch invasion and make a hasty retreat from Holland. By the time the general made it to Brussels, the situation was already verging on chaotic. 
If you've ever seen that movie Chicken Run, there's a great scene where a protagonist hen is captured by the sinister farm assistant. The onlooking hens mutter to themselves, we mustn't panic, we mustn't panic, before proceeding to scream, flail and hit 10 out of 10 on the panicometer. That scene perfectly encapsulates the situation that de Maurier found in Belgium. French forces were retreating, deserting and even looting as they rapidly gave way to the Austrian advance. Furthermore, Belgians were starting to take up arms while political factions and local priests marshalled opposition against the French occupiers. Baggage trains and retreating soldiers were attacked and robbed and crowds greeted the advancing Austrians with cries of long live the emperor. In fact, historian Jonathan Israel claims that the Austrians were welcomed with far greater enthusiasm than the French had been just months prior. In short, the situation was a disaster, but that didn't mean it couldn't get worse. Complicating de Maurier's efforts to stabilise the situation with the actions of French officials. In particular, the commissioners, which had been previously sent by the National Convention, issued a set of very controversial orders before they proceeded to hightail it out of Belgium as fast as their horses could carry them. Specifically, the Convention's men had given orders to strip Belgian churches of precious metals. Sending seized gold and silver back to France would of course bolster the French war effort, but it also bolstered anti-French sentiments among the local population. The brutal treatment of the clergy who resisted these confiscations made the situation all the more outrageous. In response, open insurrection became more common, and the French were fast losing control of the region. An official working for the Executive Council, rather than directly for the Convention, reported to the French Foreign Minister Lebrun on the 11th of March. The situation is becoming more and more alarming. All the destructive passions have been stirred up. The toxin of insurrection is being sounded in the country places. The cures and the monks are firing on our detachments. The black cockade has been raised in Grammont. Everywhere, fanaticism and the aristocracy are raising their horrible head. Democracy is silent and trembling awaits the outcome of the fight between the soldiers of liberty and the automatons of despotism. By the end of the second week of March, France was facing a disaster in every sense of the word. The French invasion of Holland had failed and the French occupation of Belgium looked set to follow. With the Austrians advancing towards Brussels, de Maurier had to take drastic measures if he was to stabilise the situation. Specifically, he needed to do three things. Firstly, he needed to get the Belgian population back on side. A general revolt would cripple any chance of halting the Germanic counterattack, let alone the successful integration of the freshly annexed region once hostilities subsided. This, of course, was far easier said than done, given months of controversial reforms forced upon the Belgians and the recent sacrilegious confiscations of the treasures of the Catholic Church. Secondly, de Maurier needed to rally the retreating French forces, forces 
crippled by desertion and despair. The general desperately needed to reassemble his army, as currently the French had no means to halt the aforementioned counterattack. Finally, de Maurier would need to do just that halt the Austrian advance. The French would have to fight the Austrians, achieve victories in the field, and then proceed to reclaim both Belgium and the neighbouring Prince Bishopric of Liège. Only then could the Dutch campaign be commenced again, or alternatively, efforts be undertaken to reverse the rapid Prussian gains from their counterattack in the Rhineland. Realising half measures would get him nowhere, and enraged at the actions of the Convention's commissioners, de Maurier proceeded to go rogue. As we explore what happens next, do keep in mind the two competing narratives we discussed in the last episode relating to de Maurier's motivation. Are these the actions of a man led by his ambition to become the Prince of Belgium? Or are these the actions of a man who merely understood that existing French policies were counterproductive, and only through a change in approach could an Austrian victory be averted. Having retreated with haste from the Dutch Republic, de Maurier found Brussels in a scene of chaos. The general sprung into action, seeking to soothe tensions with the local population while simultaneously stabilise the military situation. The city's gates were closed, the garrison was deployed, and both deserters and looters were promptly detained. Almost immediately, de Maurier broke with the French government he was supposedly answerable to. De Maurier halted the confiscation of ecclesiastical treasures and proceeded to return the confiscated gold and silver. Having reversed the orders of the commissioners, he then proceeded to move against them directly. Now to be clear, the commissioners of the National Convention had already fled Belgium, but the commissioners reporting to the Executive Council had remained. It was the Convention's men who had originally ordered the confiscation of the Church's wealth, amongst other inflammatory policies, but it was those working for the Executive Council who had implemented those orders. Outraged by the actions of French officials, de Maurier unilaterally suspended some of the Council's commissioners and even arrested one of them. To be clear, de Maurier had absolutely no authority to do this. Zero. These were French officials employed by the Executive Council who were implementing the orders of the National Convention. De Maurier was managing to defy not only one, but both branches of government. To his opponents in the Convention, this was potentially grounds for a charge of treason. But it just so happened that de Maurier was only getting started. In an effort to further suppress the French policies, which had so antagonised the Belgians, de Maurier proceeded to place considerable restrictions on local political clubs and societies. Of course, such organisations had been the intellectual and radical heart of the revolution in Paris. And thus, de Maurier was essentially declaring that he was no longer interested in exporting the revolution abroad. To the Jacobins in the capital, this too smelt of counter-revolution. 
Convinced that only a series of bold measures could remedy the situation, on the 11th of March, de Maurier appeared before the Brussels Assembly. Humbling himself before the people of Belgium, de Maurier apologised profusely for the actions of the French, declaring that the French had committed wrongs and even crimes against the Belgian people he proclaimed that he intended to rectify the first and punish the second. The general proceeded to announce a range of actions which he hoped to win the Belgians back on side. In addition to arresting and suspending certain French officials and limiting the political activities of the revolutionary clubs, de Maurier pledged to release all Belgian prisoners who had been arbitrarily arrested by the French. Furthermore, he promised the Belgians that they would never again face the persecution they had just endured. Seeking to boost his own authority at the expense of the conventions, the general announced that he had heard and ended the injustices that the French had committed. Furthermore, de Maurier claimed that he had defended the people in the past and that he would continue to do so in the future, both against French excesses and Austrian tyranny. His performance won him the applause of the Brussels Assembly. It won him the cheers of the city. But to his detractors in Paris, this was further proof that he intended to win a crown. With the Belgians at least partially satisfied by French concessions, de Maurier proceeded to escalate his break with the convention. He had arrested French officials. He had defied direct orders, and now he would publicly rebuke his masters in Paris. On the 12th of March, less than two weeks after the Austrians had first commenced their counterattack, de Maurier wrote a blistering letter to the National Convention. In it, he outlined his actions to secure Belgium and sought to justify the unorthodox, well, really illegal measures he had taken. But instead of defending himself in a way which was deferential to the convention's ultimate authority, the general went on the attack. De Maurier blamed the failure of the Dutch invasion on the now former minister Pasch, who still enjoyed considerable support amongst Jacobin deputies. So considerable that the former war minister was now the mayor of Paris. Furthermore, de Maurier denounced the radical policies of the revolution by condemning the commissioners sent by the convention. Despite being officials directly empowered by the convention, de Maurier described these commissioners as extortionists who had caused uprisings and revolts across the nation. Going further, de Maurier blamed these commissioners, and by association, the convention itself, for the failure of the establishment of an independent Belgium, and claimed that actions taken by French officials had allowed the counter-revolution to portray the French as nothing more than thieves and tyrants. In short, de Maurier held nothing back. He savaged the convention's men, the convention's policies, and ultimately the convention's deputies, as he blamed the failure in both the Upper and Lower Netherlands on the uncompromising radicalism of the revolution. Perhaps his actions are best described by historian Michael Sydenham. It was a letter which amounted to an attack upon the whole policy 
and administration of the Republic. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livese from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Enjoying Grey History? Want hours of bonus episodes without the mid-episode interruptions? Support the podcast for as little as $2 per episode and help secure more grey history more often. Those on the true revolutionary tier already have early access to episode 55, Civil War in the Vendee. Also available to all patrons is the episode extra for this episode. In it, we explore a range of topics relating to events in the Netherlands. We'll be talking about efforts by Dutch revolutionaries to ensure that the fiasco which had occurred in Belgium didn't repeat itself. We'll also be unpacking some interesting contemporary analysis on de Maurier's actions in Belgium. So, don't wait, stop what you're doing, and join the Patreon community right now. Join the club, secure the perks, and most importantly, ensure that there's more grey history waiting for you tomorrow. And right now, there's literally more grey history waiting for you right now. Half a dozen bonus episodes, in fact. And then there's the episode extras and the behind-the-scenes videos. Oh, I'm getting carried away. The point is, just go sign up. You'll love it, I swear. Unsurprisingly, such an attack elicited a response. Tensions between elements of the convention and the general had already been rising for months, but now things came to a head. Even before the general wrote his letter, Marat had already denounced on the 9th of March the treason of de Maurier and his subordinates. Shortly thereafter, Robespierre had denounced some of de Maurier's officers for allowing the fall of Aachen and lobbied for them to be hauled before the newly re-established Revolutionary Tribunal. 
the arrival of de Maurier's defiant letter and news of his illegal actions in Belgium supercharged accusations of counter-revolutionary plots and ambitions to rule Belgium as a military dictator. Once again, de Maurier's closeness with the Girondins impacted events, as members of the mountain, including Marat, blamed the Brousseauan faction for installing de Maurier in the first place. De Maurier was tied to Brousseau, Roland and other leading Girondins as factional struggles came to the fore. The Girondins were in a tough spot. Not only had they previously advocated for de Maurier, but they were the chief proponents of the Revolutionary War to begin with. Throughout March, de Maurier's opponents continued to openly attack the general, and the revolutionary cohorts of Paris demanded immediate actions against the traitors in both the military and the government. Paris became increasingly agitated. If the convention would not act against this treason, then the people of Paris would do it for them. Back in Belgium, de Maurier realised that there was only one way out. Victory. If de Maurier could rally his demoralised troops, if he could halt the Austrian advance, then maybe, just maybe, he could salvage his career. If the general could push the coalition out of Belgium, he could re-establish French control over both the Austrian Netherlands and the Prince Bishopric of Liège. If he achieved this, then all of his actions would be justified. How could he be accused of treason if he defeated the enemy when all seemed lost? How could his policies of moderation in Belgium be counter-revolutionary if they ensured the revolution's survival. If the general wished to avoid the scaffold, if he wished to salvage his career, or more importantly, the French Republic, victory was the only means to do so. The hero of Valmy had done the impossible before. Now he needed to do it again. And here, in his moment of need, the general came up short. At the Battle of Neerwinden on the 18th of March, de Maurier's forces were defeated by the Austrians. Historian Charles Esdale describes a scene of great disorder and vigorous Austrian counterattacks as the French were thrown back with considerable casualties. After Neerwinden, victory no longer seemed possible. In the days that followed, the general started openly denouncing the National Convention. He informed Danton, who had been sent by the Convention to ascertain the situation on the ground, that the Convention's rule was about to shrink to Paris alone. By this time, civil war had erupted in Western France, and the General seemed to share the sentiments of the new insurrectionists. Yet Danton did not suspend de Maurier from command, a decision that we will come back to in future episodes. In conversations with others, de Maurier publicly referred to the deputies as regicides and tyrants, and he portrayed himself as the only man capable of saving France. Modest, I know. Perhaps the only thing greater than this responsibility was the general's ego. With reports that Paris was on the verge of another insurrection, de Maurier concluded 
that the radicalism of the revolution had to end. In the aftermath of Neerwinden, de Maurier commenced secret negotiations with the Austrians. The result of these negotiations was a temporary truce in which de Maurier intended to do a Lafayette. The general would turn his men around and march on Paris. De Maurier's plan, if it could be called that, was to overthrow the convention, suppress the revolution's radicalism and restore the French monarchy. By freeing the young Louis XVII from prison and re-implementing the constitution of 1791, de Maurier hoped to avoid disaster. From his perspective, this was the only path forward for a free France. With England now in the war, the nation was encircled. The Austrians and Prussians would soon return to French soil, destroying French armies in Belgium and the Rhineland as they did so. By the end of March, Spain and the Holy Roman Empire had also entered the war, completing France's encirclement. With civil war erupting in western France, de Maurier believed that only a restored monarchy could secure peace with the Allies on terms which were somewhat favourable to the nation and the principles of the revolution. The alternative was the destruction of Paris and everything that had been achieved. De Maurier's treason became apparent at the end of March. The convention had received another provocative letter from de Maurier, denouncing the deputies for leaving his army in a state of destitution. Not only had his forces been denied the necessary supplies and manpower, but the general blamed the convention for recent defeats. But that was just the start of it. Cementing his break with the convention, de Maurier claimed that Paris was overrun by tyranny and crime and warned that anarchy was devouring the French nation. As such, he declared that it was time for the army to speak up, to purge France of both assassins and agitators, and to secure the tranquillity which had been lost due to the crimes of the convention. Outraged by this development, the convention's Committee of General Defence recommended the general's arrest. By this time, Secret negotiations with the Austrians had been going on for days, and de Maurier had chosen a side. In a scene somewhat similar to that of the attempted arrest of Chancellor Palpatine, the general had no intention of going quietly. I like to think that de Maurier muttered the words, It's treason then, as the convention's delegation attempted to arrest him, but alas, I have no historical evidence to believe that this was the case. What I can confirm, however, is that de Maurier did not kill the delegation, nor electrocute them out of a window. No, he only arrested the convention's delegates and handed them over to the Austrians. Ironically, the detained delegation included the new war minister Bernonville, the man who de Maurier had helped to put into office by lobbying for his predecessor's removal. Now, that might sound like a terrible outcome for Bernonville, but given his Girondin associations, de Maurier's betrayal probably saved his life. But saving Bernonville was not the general's intention. Instead, he only had his life to consider. 
well, that might be a tad too harsh. Depending on your politics, he was debatably attempting to save France as well, but as you can imagine, we could debate that for an eternity. Unfortunately for de Maurier, his soldiers weren't interested in any such debate. They didn't see how marching on Paris was going to save the revolution. As such, they refused to budge. Running into the exact same problems that crippled Lafayette's coup, de Maurier realised within days that all hope was lost. With his army remaining loyal to the Republic, de Maurier deserted to the Austrians in early April. Like Lafayette before him, the nation's most prominent war hero had transformed into the most treacherous of villains. It's here that de Maurier will exit our story. Well, at least for the foreseeable future. He will wander around Europe, trusted by nobody, until eventually the British decide to employ his expertise in their struggles against Napoleon. Yet, while de Maurier, the person, will not be making an appearance anytime soon, his shadow will be. Unsurprisingly, de Maurier's betrayal had significant ramifications. Here was yet another case of treason from one of the revolution's supposed heroes. Mirabeau, Lafayette and now de Maurier had all proven that the champions of the people could potentially be the most wicked enemies. Along with the treason of Louis XVI, the defection of de Maurier reinforced the culture of suspicion which permeated throughout the revolution. If the hero of Valmy, who once saved the Republic, could not be trusted, then who could be? The legacy of de Maurier's defection is considerable, and its impacts cannot be understated. Over the next several episodes, we will perhaps see half a dozen ways that this portrayal will influence the development and character of the revolution. But there are three key consequences that we need to discuss before we can turn our attention to the new civil war. Firstly, the treachery of de Maurier further incriminated and weakened the position of the Girondins. Although more conservative than his Girondin colleagues, the general had always been publicly associated with the faction. After all, de Maurier sat alongside Roland and other leading Girondins when he was the foreign minister in the so-called Brousseauan ministry. Furthermore, leading Girondins had endorsed him consistently as the nation's most prominent military commander. Having so staunchly supported de Maurier, the Girondins were now deeply compromised by his duplicity. With de Maurier possessing a few notable Girondin friends and working relationships with many more, the deputies of the mountain saw an opportunity to go on the offensive. By tying the Girondins to the general, the Jacobins worked overtime to tar their factional opponents with the same associations of deceit and deception. Once again, the Girondins were accused of all sorts of self-interested and counter-revolutionary schemes, with de Maurier's actions yet more proof of Girondin treachery. According to some of the most prominent members of the mountain, the Girondins were just as guilty as de Maurier, and it was only a matter of time before their treason 
was revealed. Now, to be clear, many Montagnard deputies had backed de Maurier right up until he went rogue. He was, after all, the hero of Valmy and saviour of the Republic. Most notably, Danton didn't break with the general until the eve of his treasonous acts. But an element of the mountain had been hostile to the commander for some time, and the Girondins had consistently been associated with de Maurier for more than a year. This dynamic allowed the Jacobins to go on the attack, despite the fact that his detractors had always been a firm minority, even within the mountain. Historian Michael Sydenham, an expert on the Girondins, summarises the situation as follows. Again, although the Montagnards, in common with the rest of the convention, had given de Maurier their confidence until his defection was self-evident, they were also able to profit afterwards by deliberately emphasising the earlier association with him of some of their own opponents. Those, particularly Jessenay, who had worked with him during his and Roland's ministry in 1792, had apparently forgiven him for his part in the dismissal of that administration, had supported his appointment as commander of the Army of the North, pleaded his cause against Pache in the convention, and hesitated to expose him when he became suspect. These things, with certain similarities of outlook common to both the general and his former friends, their dislike of the Jacobins of Paris and their tendency to appeal to the conservative elements in France, served to identify their courses and made it easier to allege that there had been clandestine collaboration between them. Particularly damaging was de Maurier's statement of his intention to preserve the sound part of the convention, a phrase which Marat never tired of quoting to discomfort his critics. The accusation of complicity with de Maurier was to remain a millstone round the necks of the mountain's chief opponents and to be a capital charge in the indictment which eventually sent them to the scaffold. So, after the defection of de Maurier, the Girondins were compromised. Well, further compromised. After all, this was by no means the first blow to the political standings of the Girondin faction. Keep in mind that over the last several months, more than half a dozen developments had weakened the popular support of the Girondins, most notably amongst the Saint-Culottes and the other revolutionary cohorts of Paris. The Girondins had reluctantly accepted the overthrow of the monarchy. They had initially opposed the revolutionary tribunal, and they rejected demands for price controls on basic foodstuffs and commodities. Furthermore, they had accused some Montagnard deputies of orchestrating the September massacres and attacked others for supposedly seeking to install themselves as dictators. Perhaps most importantly, leading Girondins had even tried to save the life of the traitorous king. Now, on top of all of that, their general, their military hero, the man they championed, they promoted, they protected, had committed the most atrocious act, high treason. To the most radical elements of the capital, 
the treason of the Girondins was as clear as the light of day. When would the convention be willing to act? When would the revolution purge itself of this criminal faction? The answer would be soon. Thus, the actions of de Maurier severely weakened his former Girondin associates and exposed them to accusations of treachery. As historian Albert Sabul notes, de Maurier's treason was a major factor in hastening the fall of the Gironde. And on the topic of the fall of the Gironde, we arrive at the next key ramification of de Maurier's betrayal. Not only did these events further endanger the position of the Girondins, but they further reinforced the culture of suspicion and distrust which had increasingly come to characterise the revolution. Historian Timothy Tackett notes that the deputies of the convention seemed to be confronted with an overwhelming calamity. Tackett's analysis of the personal letters of deputies indicates that members of the convention from all factions were primarily preoccupied with the internal threats of the counter-revolution. With the outbreak of civil war in the West, and with de Maurier's betrayal across the frontier, deputies of all stripes feared what was coming next. As Tackett himself puts it, Where would the treachery stop? Whom could they ever trust? It was proof positive that they were surrounded by traitors. This proof that treachery was everywhere had a profound impact on the development of the terror. Historian Marisa Linton notes that the treason of yet another prominent revolutionary leader convinced the deputies of the convention that the most pressing threats to the revolution were internal. Deputies became even more suspicious of each other, trust evaporated completely, and many became even more fixated on the dangers of schemes, plots, and conspiracies. Thus, de Maurier's betrayal didn't just weaken the Girondins politically, but it paved the way for all deputies to be viewed and tried as traitors. With the revolution surrounded by enemies on all fronts, with Western France rising in insurrection, and with the military attempting a coup d'etat, no one could be trusted. In this way, historian Marisa Linton argues that de Maurier's betrayal helped to pave the way for the terror. His actions reinforced the suspicions and doubts which prevented unity in the convention and facilitated the circumstances required for a willingness amongst the deputies to arrest, try and execute their own peers. Historian Marisa Linton writes, De Maurier's choice bolstered the conviction that France's most dangerous enemies were not to be found amongst the invading armies, but amongst their own leaders in positions of trust and authority. Because prior to his military promotion, de Maurier had been a political leader, the question of his conduct while a minister and its lack of authenticity became central. Never had the need to know the authentic motivations of politicians been so intense, so pressing. Political leaders who had previously supported de Maurier were now in a dangerous position 
as the fallout from his defection ratcheted up the fear that they too would be called conspirators. Du Maurier's treachery had a critical impact on the genesis of the politicians' terror. So, not only had Du Maurier's actions weakened the Girondins politically, but they helped to reinforce an environment of fear and conspiracy which would prove critical for the development of the terror. Suspicion now fell on the deputies themselves, and calls were immediately heard in the convention to investigate fellow representatives. Within days of de Maurier's betrayal, the convention passed a decree eliminating parliamentary immunity. Henceforth, representatives of the nation were exposed to arrest and trial. No one could be trusted. No one was above suspicion. Everyone could be guilty. And now, everyone could be held to account. Or unjustly executed for no real crime at all. I mean, it really just depends on how you look at things. In short, the National Convention had taken a fateful step towards the terror. And this step, this willingness to suspect and arrest their own members, was in part brought about by de Maurier. But with France facing so many threats, both at home and abroad, more had to be done to protect the revolutionary project. If it hadn't been for the loyalty of de Maurier's army, if it hadn't been for their commitment to the Republic, then the general's treasonous acts could have ended very differently. Realising this, de Maurier's actions, along with the many issues facing France, helped to convince the convention that the government needed to be reorganised. Only through new measures could the deputies defeat the threats which menaced the nation. As such, throughout March and April 1793, we see the adoption of multiple policies and institutions which will become hallmarks of the revolutionary regime. Now, we will explore these measures in good time, but it is noteworthy that it's here that the convention begins to transform the fundamental pillars of the revolutionary government. In late March, the committees of general defence and general security were both reorganised, and other measures were eventually taken to empower the convention's representatives on mission. Furthermore, the Revolutionary Tribunal had already been re-established in early March as the Austrians returned to Belgium, but soon new measures were also introduced to enhance the power of the public prosecutor. Most importantly, it's here that we see the establishment of the Committee of Public Safety. For those not familiar with the CPS, this committee will become the epicentre of the revolutionary government. You cannot discuss 1793 or 1794 without it. But, as I said earlier, we'll be getting into the detail of these measures in future episodes. So what I want to note here is the impact of de Maurier's military setbacks, his rogue policies, and finally, his outright treason. In conjunction with other developments, notably those in Western France, de Maurier's actions helped to usher in a whole host of reforms, which will include some of the most iconic and important elements of both the French Republic and the Reign of Terror. In this way, de Maurier once again left a lasting imprint 
on the development of the French Revolution. However, as alluded to moments ago, Du Maurier's treason was not the only consequential crisis to seize France in March 1793. On the opposite side of the nation, a new monster emerged. In fact, monsters would perhaps be a better way of putting it, as tens of thousands of citizens simultaneously rose up against the mastery of Paris. In March 1793, France would be plunged into a years-long civil war, a conflict which would cost the lives of hundreds of thousands and be waged with such brutality, such ferocity, that some historians controversially describe the events as a genocide. Civil war had arrived, and Western France would never be the same. Thank you for listening to episode 54, It's Treason Then. In the next episode, we'll be exploring the civil war in the Vendée. You don't want to miss it. And you don't have to because episode 55 is available right now for patrons with early access. So no need to wait weeks, just support the show and binge listen right now. For the price of a bar of chocolate, it's a much better indulgence. The episode extra for this episode covers a range of topics relating to events in the Netherlands, which we didn't have the opportunity to discuss in the main episode. We'll be talking about efforts by Dutch revolutionaries to ensure that the well, fiasco, which had occurred in Belgium, didn't repeat itself, and the negotiations that were occurring between these Dutch revolutionaries and the Convention and the Executive Council. Of course, an opportunity for a fiasco to present itself didn't occur because of the fiasco that ended up being the invasion of the Dutch Republic, but they didn't know that yet. We'll also be unpacking some interesting contemporary analysis of de Maurier's actions in Belgium, analysis which presents the general in a very different light. As always, thank you so much to the patrons for their support of the show. Grey History would not be possible without the community, so if you want to ensure Grey History will be waiting for you tomorrow, please support the show on Patreon. For as little as $2 an episode, you'll gain access to all the bonus content, behind-the-scenes videos, and an ad-free feed, so no mid-episode interruptions. Also, between now and the next episode, if you could find just one person to share the show with, that would mean the world to me. Another warm welcome to the newest patrons of the show, and a special call-out to the extraordinarily generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, and Jeff. As always, thank you for listening. Stay safe and have a great day. And don't forget, the next episode is waiting for patrons right now. It's a civil war and you don't want to miss it. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.